This quarter, we're going to look at the book uh, of Ephesians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul writes in the first century uh, to a place called Ephesus. That's a place that's there's a ton of religious pluralism, uh, a ton of worship of a bunch of different things. Christians are moderately persecuted there. Uh, it's one of the kind of lesser accepted religions in that area. And he's talking about what does it mean to be uh, identify with Christ and be in a place that doesn't identify with Christ, to live in a community that doesn't identify with Christ. What does it look like to be in Ephesus but not of Ephesus, to be faithfully follow um, Jesus in a place that doesn't really accept Jesus? And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at Paul's kind of opening greeting, and it's really almost like a song of praise. Um, so we'll jump right in. And uh, I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that He would teach us. Lord, we thank you for your servant Paul, and we thank you for what he has to say to a place like Ephesus, and as we consider really complex verses with a lot of grammar, uh, I pray, dear God, we would encounter something true, and we would encounter something beautiful, that we would encounter you. Holy Spirit, please be with us. Please change hearts. Transform us into your image. Give us faith. In your name we pray. Amen. I thought we'd start, maybe kind of jump into this point, into kind of Paul's joyful song by making this remark. I don't know if you all experienced this this past fall. I know a couple of you have. But one of the suckiest things that happened this past fall was Breaking Bad ended. <laughs> now, I know you all might, might or might not know I'm Presbyterian. Even though I'm Presbyterian, can I get an amen on how terrible it is that Breaking Bad is over? Can I get an amen? Let's hear it. Yes. Okay. No amens for Jesus, but amens for Breaking Bad. we got a lot of problems, but that's all right. Um, I hated it when Breaking Bad ended. It was absolutely incredible art. Uh, Lord of the Rings, reading the books, the movies, were, the movies were good, but if you read the books, when they end, there's like sorrow that the, so- the story stops. Uh, felt the same way about Sopranos. 
Felt the same way about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and Veronica Mars. Um, And you know, like, when Breaking Bad ended this fall, I don't know how y'all felt, but like, something was gone. Uh, There was that regular weekly anticipation. And I think in one sense, maybe you've encountered that. I I suspect you have. Um, What really sucks is not having something to love. I didn't know what I was going to love every week. Uh, when, when I finished reading Lord of the Rings, it really sucked not having something to look forward to and something to love. And I know a lot of the Stanford students, I've talked to y'all, uh, on campus, you meet these people, and we can't stand you, but we love you, um, in the computer science department, usually guys and girls, and y'all have like vision and passion, and you like came here for a reason, and you have your startup, and you're going to change the world. And the rest of us are actually frustrated but also jealous because you seem to have something that you love. And actually, like, 87% of the student body is all intimidated by you, and they actually think you're 87% of the student body and that they're in this tiny fraction. But the rest of us are, are, feel frustrated because, like, we don't have that directed love you have. And if it's not your startup in computer science, you also, you know, there's several of y'all that you have your nonprofit that, you, that you, you're going to change the world. And these things are good things. I mean, I'm making light of them, but I'm kind of not. These are good things. And, and some of y'all want to bring, you know, Quidditch to inner city underserved kids or something like that. Or, you know, there's, there's some upper middle class kids that still carry their own golf clubs. And so you want to start caddies for, uh, you know, kids without caddies or something. But you have a vision of how you're going to have impact. You know? And you have a passion and you have something you love. And uh, the rest of us feel like we, ha- we wish we had something that we loved that way. And I've found that especially true here at Stanford where there's a lot of ambition, a lot of talent. You kind of feel like an idiot if you don't have something that you're passionate about. A really powerful reason for why you're here, what you love, and what you're doing. And so many of us are just trying to come up with something to love. Or maybe somebody to love. And we want something to love so much that we'll take fake love. We'll take bad love. We'll let people lie to us about what love is. We'll lie to ourselves about loving something. We'll convince ourselves we love something that in fact we don't. We'll take temporary love. We'll take cheap love. We'll lower our standards of what we're willing to love and maybe who we're willing to love. And we'll try to force ourselves to love something because we look around and we realize people are defined by what they love and I don't have anything yet. What Paul is doing in Ephesians is he is talking about what he loves. Uh, this verse 3 through 14 is actually one sentence. It's, I, I believe it's the longest sentence in the Bible. Uh, it's incredibly complex. It's confusing. I tried to diagram it several times. I couldn't figure it out. But I think what's actually happening when you write a sentence this long, it's over 200 words, uh, it's what happens when you start talking about something you love. When people really get fired up about something that's at the center of who they are, they tend to use run-on sentences. Right? You just start going and going and going and going. And that's what's happening to Paul. He's excited. And he's teaching us about the nature of enjoying the thing that you love. Because he's writing to a people about something he loves. And in that, what he's doing, he's teaching us that 
you actually really most fully enjoy your object of love when you express praise for it and invite others into it. When you express praise for it and invite others into it. If you know me, you'll know that about Veronica Mars. I can extol the excellencies of Veronica Mars and invite you into it. Some of y'all have actually met Jesus in Veronica Mars. But that's another sermon. We'll talk about it later. But when you love something, the best thing about loving it is talking to others about it. Praising it and bringing others in. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. The most obvious fact about praise, whether it's God or anything, strangely escaped me. I always thought of it in terms of a compliment or approval or giving honor. I never noticed that actually all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, reading pra- readers praising their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, children, flowers, mountains, even sometimes politicians or scholars. He says this, I had, noticed, I, had, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever it is they love, they also spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. And so they say, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? The psalmist in telling everybody to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise and what we enjoy Uh, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, listen to this, but actually completes the enjoyment. It's actually the appointed consummation of enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. Their delight is incomplete until it's expressed. That's why it's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at a uh, a turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. You hear what he's saying? The consummation of actually enjoying the thing you love is actually expressing it and bringing others in on it. And you do that, and I do that all the time for the things we love. That's what Paul's doing. Paul is saying, when he says... Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his launch into praise. He's saying God is amazing. God the Father has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now before we get into the meat of text, I'll say this one thing. When it says heavenly places right there, maybe the simplest way to understand it is not that... God's blessed us with these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, meaning that the spiritual blessings are on layaway. They're purchased and they're set aside somewhere else. What he's actually saying is the spiritual blessings of heaven break into this life when you meet Jesus. And Paul is overflowing with enthusiasm and with joy and with praise because of the blessings of God that come through Jesus. He has found something. In fact, he's actually found the thing in which our inborn desire to love and to be loved is finally met. Doesn't it suck not to have anything to love? Don't you want to have something to love? Don't you want to have something to love that is permanent? 
That's what Paul is extolling before us. And so what he does is he catalogs all the excellencies, all the blessings that you, that we have in Jesus. The catalog is laced with all these explosions of praise. They just keep popping up. Blessed is God to the praise of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go through the catalog. We're going to go through the major blessings he talks about. You have the outline in there, why Paul loves God. And we're going to do something tonight that's exciting and fun, and I hope you keep coming back to RUF, but we're going to launch into some of the harder, we're going to launch right into one of the harder doctrines that's confusing and frustrating in Scripture. Paul says, blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then he starts cataloging those spiritual blessings. He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The first blessing Paul extols is that we are chosen. And you're right if you heard those words to conclude that Paul is talking about the doctrine of predestination. That we are chosen, that God's people are chosen before the foundation of the world. And it doesn't just show up in verse 4, right? That's also laced all throughout the passage we read. He predestined according to the purpose of his will, according to his purpose, having been predestined, working all things to the counsel of his will. All throughout this passage is actually praise for this fact that God's love and his act of blessing was planned. And everybody who encounters scripture on this point is troubled by at some point. I get that. And we're not going to go into all of it tonight. And you can... We, we can meet later. My information's on here. I love meeting students. We can talk about it more. But we are going to talk about it some for a moment. What is Paul doing? He's praising God because God chose. Because God's love is planned. It wasn't capricious. It wasn't unintentional. It wasn't circumstance. It was planned. It was intentional. And it was purposed from the beginning of creation, from before the beginning. Now, I assume y'all have seen Braveheart, and hope you have. But William Wallace, the the main character in the story, um, what happens at the beginning of the movie is, as a child, his family dies, and he's shipped off, and he grows up with his uncle, and he comes back more than a decade later. And when he comes back as an adult, he reintroduces himself to this woman that he was friends with when they were little children. And so that's where the love story begins in Braveheart. And does anybody remember what he says when he professes his love to her for the first time? Does anybody remember? Anybody want to do a Scottish accent? I don't know what. I'll do my best Scottish accent, but I have no idea what it is. He says this. He goes, I love you. I always have. Y'all remember that? He says, I love you. I always have. But when you watch Braveheart, nobody says, that's so unfair that he chose her a long time ago. No, we think that's awesome. He always knew he was going to love her. What Paul is simply saying right here, and I think we can probably, maybe safely conclude that God speaks with a Scottish accent, is this. God is saying, I love you. I always have. That's what Paul is saying. And that's how we're to receive what he's saying about this. Now, why is this important? Because we, this is part of what love is. 
Because this is what love isn't. Maybe this is the way we think about God. Love is not somebody standing on a street corner, God standing on a street corner, offering anybody who passed by, who happened to pass that by that day, his love. Like, hey, I don't know you yet, but I'm offering this. Anybody want it? Sure, you want it? Okay, here. That's not love. Love is choosing. Love is from before the foundation of the world. I knew I was going to love you. Love chooses. Salesmen and solicitors offer. They don't care about the person that they're freely offering things to. Love chooses. And that's what Paul's saying. Isn't it blessed to know that in Christ God knew you? Specifically, that you would be the object of His love. Y'all, we're, we're all looking for something to love. On campus, we're looking for something to give us life and meaning and purpose. And what Paul is saying is the way Christianity works is God's love comes looking for you first. And just so you know, if you're wondering, if you're sitting there, is His love then coming for me? I don't know. And if you're wondering and you want His love to be coming for you, then the answer is yes, His love is coming for you. And I also want to say this about this kind of idea of God choosing. The first time God chooses in the Bible happens in Genesis 12. And he chooses this man named Abram. And that's the first time we see God go and select someone and says, you specifically, I'm calling you out and I'm blessing you. But when God chooses, he's not simply, hey, Abraham, here's all this stuff. God's choosing actually also comes with a task. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the world. God's act of choosing is not to call you out and coddle you and privilege you. His act of choosing is to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. His act of choosing is actually for blessing the world. It's not about hoarding blessings. It's about spreading blessings. So if you're in Christ, you're never to think, oh, thank goodness, God chose me. You're actually to think, I have to let the rest of the world know what I have in Jesus. I'm going to bring this blessing to the world around me. Paul actually uses this doctrine in Romans 10 to broaden the scope of God's saving work, not to narrow it. He's actually speaking to the Jewish people and he's saying, y'all got to get over yourselves. It's not just you. God's choosing far more people than you know. God actually uses the doctrine of predestination to broaden God's saving work, not to narrow it. And I know you still have questions that I didn't answer at all, and it's, and it's complicated, and we can overthink it. But I think, in summary, we really what we need to understand is Paul's really just saying this. God loves you. He always has. You're chosen in Jesus. Adopted. Number two. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What is adoption? It's identity that's rooted in relationship. You are a treasured son or daughter. You have the privileges of sons and daughters. You have the access of a son or daughter. In this room, there's a wide variety of parental relationships. There's some bad ones and there's some good ones. There's some disasters. There's some absent parents. There's some abusive parents, manipulative ones, some performance-based ones. And even the best ones in this room are broken. And our sadness about the brokenness of that relationship with our parents is actually testimony that we need 
that identity-confirming wholeness that comes with knowing you have a father who loves you perfectly. And I, don't, I don't know if you've seen this video, and, um, but it's amazing. This video it went viral sometime last year about this 10-year-old boy who's getting kind of chewed out by one of these drill sergeants at one of these um, disciplinary schools. Are you all familiar with this thing? You can send problem kids to these disciplinary schools where they have drill sergeants that chew them out, and it's kind of this tough love scenario. And this video it came out a year or two ago, and you can find it. This 10-year-old boy is getting chewed out by the drill sergeant. He's threatening him, and he's wagging his finger, and he's shouting at him. And this is what the drill sergeant says to him. He says, you're an adult till you're 18. You want me to be your daddy for the next eight years of your life, son? And he's pointing at him, and he's putting his finger in his chest. And it's a 10-year-old boy, and the little boy says, yes, sir. And the drill sergeant actually gets taken off guard. And he says, why do you want me to be your daddy? And y'all got to see this video. The little boy says, because I have no daddy. And everything falls apart at that point. And it's actually beautiful. And it's also sad. Because what we see, what you, when you watch that little boy, you long for him to have a father. And when you watch that little boy, you even grieve how our relationship is broken with our own father. And I grieve my relationship with my daughters as a father. Because something in us is saying, we're made to have a father. This is when Jesus, when Jesus teaches us to pray. He's saying, hey, you need to know that what prayer is, is talking to your father. And so when you start praying, say, Father, our father. The worst and the best families in this room, all of them are going to break and fade and weep and despair. All of them. The good ones and the bad ones. And all, even the best families in this room are just shadows of the good fatherhood of God. And if you're in Christ, you're adopted. You didn't join a movement. You joined God's family. And in life, you will either live as an orphan or as a son or daughter. Orphans don't know who they are because they don't know who their father is. So they're full of fear and they're driven by insecurity because they don't know if anyone will value them. Sons and daughters have confidence because they know the love of their father. In Christ, you have a perfect father. In Jesus, you can know you are loved because he chose you. In Jesus, you're adopted. Thirdly, in Jesus, there's redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon all of us. Redemption is the release from the judgment of the law that stands against us. That's what it is. It's the forgiveness of sins, the wiping away of the debt we've incurred. And what I hope you're seeing is that all the blessings you have in Jesus, they address all the things that are broken in life. We don't know if we can be loved. And he says, God chose you. We don't know if we can have a community, if we can have a father. He says, God brings you into his family. We don't know if our guilt is going to get us. And Jesus redeems you, forgives your sin. We feel the guilt. We try to silence our shame. We try to explain ourselves away and our behavior. We don't want to believe that we're not who we really know we are. And when the junk of our heart and the shame in our life, when it comes out, we think things like, 
Okay, but that's out of character for me, right? We have those episodes where something comes out in our life where we do something, we say something, we find ourselves in a season entertaining thoughts or doing things. We're like, okay, but that's not the real me because we can't handle the truth, which is, that is the real us. Those situations actually reveal who we are. And in Jesus, there is redemption through his blood. Forgiveness always comes with a price. When there's an offense... For justice to happen, either the offender or the offended has to pay a price. And the gospel is that God so loved you that he, the offended party, pays the price for your offense. And he does it because he loves you and he's not angry. He doesn't begrudge you for it. How could we ever exhaust the praise of God if we have that kind of redemption in Jesus? Freedom from accusation and freedom from guilt because Jesus stood to receive the justice due to us. And Jesus' forgiveness is offered redemption from your sins. And in some sense, that, that, that word sin is also another word that we struggle with. But here's my question. Would you rather try to explain away your behavior and just use rhetoric and justification and clever words to explain away your behavior? Or would you rather simply be forgiven? Do you want to keep carrying it and dealing with it and trying to explain it and justify it? Or would you rather just hear words of forgiveness? That's what Jesus offers you. Chosen, adopted, redeemed. Fourthly, he gives knowledge. He lavished all this upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Wisdom and insight and making known. The wisdom is given to us. It's not his. It's wisdom and insight he's giving us. Making known the mystery of God's will. One of the blessings of Christ is simply knowledge. Wisdom and insight. We actually get to know more and more about the true nature of things, about who God is, about who we are. We get to grow in comprehension and understanding of God's saving purposes, of His love, of His design for creation and for humanity, of His goodness. That's the blessing of knowledge and wisdom and insight. The question is now, how is that a blessing? It's a blessing in this way. You know what's better than having good things? Having good things and understanding them. Here's what I mean. iPhones are awesome. I love iPhones, big fan uh, of Apple, all that kind of stuff. But every time I get an iPhone, within a month or two, someone sends me a link to a website that then tells you about all these hidden features in the iPhone. And then all of a sudden, it's like you have this new product. Same iPhone, all the features were there. Now that you understand it better, you enjoy it all the more. Does that make sense? Still have the exact same thing. The more you learn about it, actually the more you enjoy it. You can have Jesus and experience actually smaller or larger amounts of joy depending on how much you understand about what you have in Jesus. And this is why the answer to spiritual dryness, right, the experience of your, of your life in Christ, maybe it's grown stale and you, you don't feel anything, the spiritual dryness problem is answered with theology you need to do some theology you need to go to the website that shows you all the features in Christ that you didn't know you had that website's the Bible that's a really cheesy illustration but <laughs> do some theology if your life is dry knowledge is actually the blessing that multiplies your experience of all the other blessings Chosen, adopted, redeemed, given knowledge, and lastly, sealed 
with the Holy Spirit. We who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory in Him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. A seal signifies ownership or, th- or authenticity. And you think of it this way. You've seen maybe royalty will have a seal. They'll have a signet ring that has their seal on it of their family. A king or a queen might produce some correspondence, a letter, and what they'll do is they'll drip wax on it and then press their ring into it. And that's putting their seal on their correspondence to authenticate it as theirs. This is my word. This is my letter. This is from me. The Holy Spirit functions as a seal so that you can know you are God's. But he also calls the Holy Spirit a guarantee or a pledge. That's the image of a down payment or a deposit. And those things guarantee ownership. The Holy Spirit is given to function as a guarantee that all these things are yours in Christ Jesus, that we are His. And we might not experience actually the full joy of all the spiritual blessings we have, but they're ours nonetheless, and the full experience of them will come. So the question is then, well, how do I know if I have this Holy Spirit thing, this seal and this pledge? How, how can I experientially figure out if that's happening in my life? Because that sounds kind of uber weird and uber spiritual. What does it mean? How do I know if I have this Holy Spirit seal and this guarantee? And there's more to that question than this, but I'll give you a very concrete place to start. Jesus says in John that when the Spirit comes... He will convince you of the things Jesus has taught. And that means this. If you want to know whether or not you have the Holy Spirit, if you believe the things Jesus taught, that means you have the Holy Spirit. Believing the Word of God is the work of Holy Spirit in your life. That's how you know you have the guarantee and the pledge that you are sealed and that you are God's. You're chosen, you're adopted, you're redeemed, you're given knowledge to enjoy it more, and the Holy Spirit confirms it. And you know you have the Holy Spirit if you simply read the words of God and you think, I believe that. So I'll conclude with an observation and two short applications, very short. Why does Paul overflow with this kind of jumbled grammar of praise? He does it because that's what happens when you experience something awesome. You are accounted and wordy, profuse praise, and you tell all of all the great things, and you invite other people into it. But there's one phrase that actually occurs more than anything else. It actually occurs 11 times, and you probably picked up on it. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in Him. Verse 5, through Jesus. Verse 6, in the Beloved. 7, in Him. 9, in Christ. 10, in Him. Verse 11, in Him. Verse 12, in Christ, and then twice in verse 13, in Him and in Him. Eleven times in one sentence, Paul talks about being in Christ. And he's reinforcing that all of these blessings come from being in Jesus. Through Christ alone. God chose us to be in Christ. Jesus is God's true Son, so if we are in Him, we are God's children. Jesus' blood redeemed us. Christ is also called the Word of God. So if you're learning things about God, you're actually learning about Christ, and you're sealed with the Spirit when you believe in Christ. Do you see all of these blessings are in Christ? They're only had 
in Jesus. So here's the two application points. First one is this. How do you get in Christ? Maybe you don't know where you are. You don't know if you're in Him. Maybe you want to be in Him. Maybe you don't. How do you get in Christ? The Bible says this. Everybody is one of two people. Everyone is a member of one or two families. That's the way the Bible views the world. In Romans 5, Paul talks about how there are those who are in Adam. And in fact, we're all born in Adam, a member of that family. That's our natural heritage. Being in Adam means this, that we have a rebellious heart, that it's turned away from God, that we seek meaning and love and purpose on our own, apart from God. We try to manufacture meaning and love and purpose with our time and with our money and with our imagination and with our hands. And that's one family. And God always lets people have what they want. And so if all you want out of life is everything you can manufacture with your time and your money and your hands and your imagination, then you are in Adam and God says you can have everything that you want and that you can manufacture for yourself in Adam. And you know what? That has consistently gotten every single person that's ever lived? Death. You can get some good stuff for death with your money and your time and your imagination and your hands. But that's all it's actually eventually produced. And what's offered in Jesus is an invitation into a new family, a new head, a new leader to be in Christ. And Christ means that you actually stop finding love and life and meaning and hope in the things of this world and the things that you can manufacture in your own dreams. But you actually come to Jesus and you just say, there's rebellion and sin in me, and I'm tired of it. Will you have me? Will you forgive me? And his answer is yes. And you don't have to wonder whether or not you're chosen because if you're drawn to Jesus, you're chosen. You come into Christ by having faith that He is going to be the one that gives you meaning and purpose and life and forgiveness and hope and healing. That's how you come to Christ. If you're frustrated Christian, downcast Christian, identify yourself that way but you find it hard and frustrating. Maybe your spiritual life lacks vibrancy and the joy that Paul has here. Don't you wish you sang that way? Don't you wish when you sang it was full of power? Here's what we need. Here's what we need to do. We need to take God at His word that He's blessed us in Christ. And if you begin to take Him at His word and saying like, I don't understand and I'm not happy right now, but I'm going to believe that I have these blessings in Christ. You're going to begin to see the ways that you have these blessings in Christ. Take time to explore what you have in Jesus. And here's kind of the question. Are the things that Paul talks about here, chosen, adopted, redeemed, taught, sealed, are those the things you wanted from God? Or were you looking for other things? That might be why we're frustrated. Right? Because we wanted grades and a relationship and emotional stability and guidance on a decision and everybody to like us and to feel better about ourselves and to get accepted and to lose weight. I wanted these things and I'm frustrated because those things aren't happening in my life. God, where are you? And this is what we need to remember. He's a good father. And good good parents... Give their children what's good for them, even if their children don't know what's good for them. A lot of our disappointment with God is that we think we know better than Him what's good for us. And what Paul is doing is he's exploding with joy over what God has done and is doing. And we need to say to ourselves, 
our Father is good. He actually knows better than me what I need. So I'm actually going to explore the good gifts that He has given us, chosen, adopted, redeemed, taught, sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to explore those instead of whine about the blessings that I wanted but didn't get. Trust that your dad knows better than you what you need. You need to say that to him. You need to admit it to yourselves. We need to meditate on what he does give us and not what we wanted him to give us. And I think what's going to happen for us is we're going to find that adoption and election and forgiveness and redemption and inheritance and sealing and the Holy Spirit is far better than getting A's and boyfriends and girlfriends and a job. Those things are good, and you might get those things in those life, but they're not that great when they're lined up next to this list. And they're all temporary, and this list isn't. Remind yourself, and hopefully find others who will remind you that you are in Christ. When confronted with temptation and struggles, and encountering weakness and anxiety, when you're losing your identity, you need to speak to your own heart, but we also need to speak to each other and need to remind each other that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. That's your big thing. Boyfriend, girlfriend, son, daughter, fraternity, Southern California, Texan, athlete, all of those identities will fade. They will disappear. Your main thing is that you are in Christ. And we lose our way all the time, and we need those words spoken to our hearts over and over again. We need to speak them. We need to hear them from God. We need to hear them from one another. It sucks not having something to love. And there are a lot of things you can love for a little while. But they're all going to run out. And Paul invites us to meet Jesus, the one whose love never fails. Let's pray.